I now get the privilege of introducing one of our speakers tonight, Chi uh, Win. So have had an amazing time getting to know her and consider her a friend. Um, so Chi is an immigrant uh, refugee born in Vietnam and escaped to the US with her mom in 1978 when she was 18 months old. She grew up outside of DC in Alexandria, Virginia. She lived in Greensboro, North Carolina for 16 years and moved to KC in 2019 because her oldest son joined the Sporting KC Soccer, Soccer Academy. She is married to Justin and has two boys, Thomas, who is 15, and William, who's six. She is on the board of Faith Action International House in Greensboro, North Carolina, a nonprofit that educates it, uh, for immigrants and educator educates communities. She is also on the leadership team of The Open Table, a spiritual community that seeks liberation for all and works to be actively anti-racist. Um, she volunteers for Catholic charities as an English tutor for refugees uh, in the New Root program. And she tutors students as they prepare to take the US citizenship test. <clears throat> and recently she organized the Stop Asian Hate Vigil um, with Betty Stackleford and uh, it was sponsored by Cafe Cafe. So Chi, thanks for being willing to share some of your story with us tonight. Sure. Um, thank you, Reverend Latia. Um, I actually um, am so excited to be here. Um, because faith action and the open table means so much to me and both my worlds are colliding tonight and it is really exciting to me and very meaningful to me. Um, but I am going to share my story uh, with you all a little bit later, um, but I am so excited and honored to introduce Reverend David Percaro. David Fercaro is the executive director of Faith Action International House. Prior to coming to Greensboro, David worked on interfaith and, oh, I'm already gonna mess this up, ecumenical cooperation with the Interfaith Youth Corps in Chicago and the National Council of Churches in New York City. He has also worked for the Riverside Church in New York City as the coordinator for Sojourners Visitation Ministry with detained immigrants and asylum seekers. The group, inspired the independent movie, The Visitor. Reverend Fricaro is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ and has served as a minister with two congregations in New Jersey. He has also been a human rights volunteer for the United Church of Christ in Bolivia, Kenya, and East Timor, and with the United Nations. David is a graduate of Union Theological Seminary, Masters of Divinity, and Columbia University, Masters of Human Rights. Prior to graduate school, David worked as an actor and singer performing in theaters across the United States. And mostly, I am so excited because David is a friend of mine and somebody that I admire and really respect deeply. So, David Fercaro. 
Thanks, thanks, Chi, uh, and and thank you, uh, everyone. I I had a chance to be with the open table a few weeks ago, um, and I was very moved by uh, what by the community you all have created. It's very clear to me that this is a group that that, that trusts each other, uh, that cares and 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 loves each other. Um, Perhaps some folks that may have not had the, uh, the greatest experience with the institutional church, and I'm an ordained minister, and you can add me, <laughs> me to that club, um, uh, and and have found you know a sense of community and spirituality and meaning and purpose in one another. And I, I have nothing but tremendous respect and appreciation for that. And so, um, anything also that 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 she's a part of, um, I I trust and appreciate and feel welcome at. So thank you, Chi, and uh, and thank you, leadership uh, of of Open Table. I actually this morning had planned to, as I was thinking through today, had planned to be in, in, in my hotel room. I'm actually on, on vacation, kind of my first real vacation since the pandemic started, um, and uh, planned to do these uh, rails to trail bike rides throughout Iowa and Missouri and South Dakota. And my first day, I, I got up at, at, and got on the bike trail at noon today and was all ready to go. And the first 20 miles was beautiful. Everything I had hoped for, my mind was starting to feel free. Um, and then sure enough, on my way back, um, something on my bike uh, falls loose. I wipe out and badly injure my ankle. And for the first time in my life, have to do the thumbs up on the side of the road. Um, and how many of us have ever you know, passed people that have done thumbs up on the, on the side of the road and, 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 and understandable why, but uh, uh, Matthew, if you're out there in the world, uh, a young man named Matthew decided to, to stop, give me a chance. I, I asked him to speed back 20 miles to the parking lot where my car was parked um, after trying for 30 minutes. And now I'm in the parking lot now speaking with you all. And so uh, we owe this to, to Matthew's kindness uh, for, for the stranger, if you will. Um, I was, uh, you know, as we were thinking about what to talk about today, I was really encouraged just to be myself, to be vulnerable and to, to use story um, and, and that people have responded well to that at the open table. And so I, I wanna share a little of my, my story. Uh, I grew up on the um, Indiana, Kentucky border in a small town called uh, Paradise. Um, and there's a lot of parts of my, my culture, my hometown that I'm proud of. Little league um, ball games, fishing on the Ohio River, um, performing in musicals like The Music Man in Oklahoma. Um, you know, but what my town really had in rustic charm, it, it seriously lacked in, in racial, cultural, and religious diversity. And there are parts of my culture that um, I've learned um, perhaps not to appreciate uh, as much over time. Um, and uh, you can imagine what a shock it was to me then to go to college at the University of Miami and then to try to be a hotshot actor um, and live out in the most diverse neighborhood in the entire world, Queens, New York. According to the United Nations, people of more cultures, faiths, nationalities living in, a, in, in proximity of one another than any other place in the world. Um, and, and for the first time in my life, I was in the minority, wasn't the dominant language, culture, race, faith, not the same smells I'd been used to coming out of the bakeries. Um, and, um, and so I, I felt kind of like the new, new kid at school. And, and, and do you all remember that moment in, in high school when you turn around from paying the lunch man or lunch lady? And you'd see that sea of tables and your heart started beating real fast. Where are my people? Where's my table? You know, is today gonna be the day that I try and sit at another table? Will people come sit with me? 
And it was that feeling times about a thousand in Queens. So I did what a lot of people kind of do. You kind of keep to yourself. But thankfully, some of my newest neighbors started reaching out to me. Um, I remember my, my uh, Mexican neighbors would hold on to my mail when I was lucky enough to get an acting job out of town. I remember the first Muslim um, Iraqi refugee man I've ever met. He had been a doctor in Iraq, and he had to start all over when he came to the United States with his family. And so he ended up being a Subway sandwich maker. As a poor actor, I lived off of that foot-long sandwich, you know, half for lunch, half for, half for dinner. Um, and I remember I, first time I came in, he said, hey, how you doing? What do you do? I said, actually, don't tell me. You're, you're, you're trying to be an actor, aren't you? He said, yeah. He said, don't worry. I'll, I'll put some extra meat and cheese on your sandwich. That guy kept me alive for some lean years. Um, and just as I was starting to realize, you know, um, this diversity thing wasn't something to be afraid of, but to, to embrace, you know, that I had a seat at the table. In Queens, 9-11 um, happened. And I was actually at an acting audition that morning, um, just a few miles north from the first train, um, uh, when the first tower got struck and caught one of the last trains back underneath the East River to Queens, got off on the Queensboro Bridge um, stop and, and watched both towers fall from there. And, and perhaps many people on this call can remember that, that moment. And half of me was thinking, David, you need to go back to Paradise, Indiana, around people like you, where you're safe. And the other half of me was thinking, breathe. This is your new home. This is your new table. It's going to be okay. And so I had this tension inside. And so I went to church to try to figure this out, the Riverside Church on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And um, while the church was incredibly important to my, my journey and formation, it was actually a ministry of the church, the Sojourners Visitation, Detention Visitation Program with detained immigrants that really changed my life. We'd take a, a van from the Upper West Side of Manhattan on Saturday mornings out to the outskirts of Newark and JFK Airport to these abandoned airport warehouses where inside were two, 300 men and women from all, from all over the world. Um, Tibetan Buddhist women fleeing Chinese religious persecution after their spouse had been um, tortured. Um, West African Muslim man who had fled near genocide hid out in a grain container on a cargo ship for eight days as it went across the ocean and just drank the water as it dripped down. And when he got to the seaport, he took the lid off, found him inside, didn't have the right papers, so he was put inside, along with the Tibetan woman, young Catholic Colombian woman who had been forced to be a dental assistant and a sex slave to a um, group fighting the, um, the government in the hills of, of Colombia, um, got a passport, came, or got a fake passport, came to JFK um, airport, didn't have the right documentation, was put inside as well. Um, I know these folk stories because going one Saturday turned into eight years of, of going and at first, Again, I didn't know what to say, what to do. We didn't speak the same language, not the same culture or faith. But through that bulletproof class, we at least looked at one another with empathy in our eyes. That was an important lesson for me to understand that even if you don't speak the same language, you can still communicate non-verbally a whole lot of very powerful things to other human beings. We started to draw pictures of one another's um, homelands and hold them up to the bulletproof glass. We started to learn a little bit of one another's languages they tell me about how they love their homeland, but they were forced to flee devastating poverty and violence. And the treatment that they were getting inside, lights on 24 seven, weren't allowed outside. Some hadn't smelled fresh air in two years. They spoke up too much. They were put in solitary confinement. And of all things that asked me about my acting auditions, 
I was like, to hell with my acting auditions. How are you all doing? And they said, no, you being here is not charity. You being here is solidarity. And I'd like to think I'd do the same thing for you if you were in this position. What we have is a friendship. And they inspired me so much by their, their courage, their resilience, their innovation in the midst of that kind of hell to survive and to still find hope was, was miraculous to me and helped me to start take my faith a little bit more seriously. And we say that auditioning for Mama Mia just wasn't all that important anymore after a little while. Um, and so I, I went to seminary, got an additional degree in human rights, really studied for a long time the intersect of faith and migration. Um, and today I, I can say that I'm an ordained minister because of my Tibetan roots, West African Muslim, Catholic, Colombian friends that I met inside of detention, some of whom we were able to get a lawyer for and are doing well in the United States and other who, after two years of terrible treatment in the detention facility, were sent back to their home country and I haven't heard from since. It's important to note that detention's been around for a long time. It's, it's, it's not a new issue by any means. And the treatment of newcomers in this country is an issue that uh, this nation has struggled with uh, since its, its founding. Who's included, who, who's not? Who's a stranger to fear? Who's a neighbor to embrace? And you all certainly know that that debate continues to go on today. I, uh, I work at Faith Action, um, as she mentioned, uh, in downtown Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, and we do three things. We, we serve about 3,000 newcomers from over 60 diverse nations each year, the vast majority of whom live near below the poverty line, have limited or no immigration status. Um, and have been living in fear for quite some time, but also have tremendous gifts to offer um, our community, um, providing direct help with food, housing, healthcare, legal services, et cetera. We also educate the larger community on immigration issues, so they're not believing everything they hear on the evening news or in political debates, but are kind of learning to take their political hat off and put their faith hat on, on this issue. And then the last thing we try to do is bring those two groups together, the immigrants we serve and advocate alongside, the larger community we educate. So as much as possible, they come together and they eat and they laugh and they sing and they cry and they dance and they kick a soccer ball together so that strangers in our community become neighbors. And much like sitting at that new table, um, reaching outside of people that we usually relate to can be very scary. Um, it's scary to go to that new table, to, to risk doing that, um, to build understanding, trust, and cooperation, kind of the DNA of positive human relationship with those who may be different from us in culture, faith, na nationality, or politics is, is like a dance. Um, how many of you ever learned a new dance before? In a moment, I'm going to ask you all to reflect in small groups about how that, how that felt to, to you all. Um, for most of you, it probably felt awkward. It's like the one thing that unites all of humanity is the awkwardness of learning a, a new dance. And when it comes to relationships between existing citizens and newcomers, we usually see the dance play out in one of three ways. The first way is this. All right, you're new to this country, that's fine but you're gonna learn my language, my culture. 
on leading the stance. And if you mess up too much, you could end up in a massive detention facility like the one I talked about earlier. You know, you all know exactly what I'm talking about. We hear that kind of dialogue from politicians in grocery stores, a variety of other places. The second way we see the dance playing out is, wow, you're new to this country. That must be so intimidating. You know what? Forget kind of the general laws and, and, and language and culture here. I, I want you to feel comfortable so you lead the dance the entire time. While we have tremendous empathy and appreciation for that instinct, we actually think long-term that that's ultimately not going to work either. We think there's a third way, and that is recognizing that both of our dances, both of our cultures, both of our faiths, nationalities have a place in our community. The only way this is going to work is if we take turns leading that dance. Here's the thing. As we all mentioned, it's awkward. It's going to take time. We're going to want to book for the door because it's going to feel uncomfortable. We're going to step on each other's toes. In faith action, we always say, if you all want to make America great again, be the kind of people who stay on the dance floor. We give each other a little bit of grace when we step on each other's toes. We breathe through the tension and misunderstanding. And I've found if you stay on the dance floor long enough with somebody who may be different from you in culture, faith, even politics, that you'll have one of the greatest privileges of being a human being which is learning another human being's dance. When they see you making an effort to learn their dance, they're going to be far more open to learning yours. If you all hang out on that dance for long enough, you'll create a beautiful new dance together. And if you think about some of the most golden moments in this nation's history, it's when two groups who feared one another as strangers hung out on the dance for long enough to embrace one another as neighbors. And that's ultimately what we're after um, at Faith Action. And not only just embracing one another, but really risking for one another. The more we know one another, the more likely we are to care about one another. The more we care about one another, the more likely we are to serve, love, and protect each other. And I kind of want to end by just simply noting, um, if I regret one thing from my time at the detention facility, it, wasn't, it was that I didn't do more. I really had the thought during that time, David, why don't you get a tent and camp outside of this detention facility and not leave. And if you get arrested, just come back and come back and come back. And I still wonder to this day why I didn't take that chance, why I didn't take that, that, that risk. And I, I, as you all know, oftentimes we don't generally really take action in some bold and risky ways for another human being until that issue that becomes personal. And usually those issues become personal when you have some deep relationship with one another. And so, more than anything, I just really want to encourage you all to build understanding, trust, and cooperation with people who may be different in culture, faith, nationality, even politics, to take that risk. And once you form that relationship, to really risk taking bold, deeply caring, and surprising action on behalf of your newest, your newest neighbors. Um, I know um, Maddie and uh, and, and other folks at the open table have a few questions and was hoping we could go into small groups. And really, more than anything, before we get into any too heavy issues, I really wanted you all in small groups to, to uh, answer two questions and to give everybody in that small group a, a, a chance to, to really talk about two things. And you can either talk about both or one or the idea. 
Um, but the first is, again, do you remember that moment? I want you to go back to that moment in high school where you saw the sea of tables. Um, what did it look like? What did it feel like for you? Do you have a story for when you did risk going and sitting at a new table and how did that go? And or what was it like for you to learn a new dance? Think back maybe the first time you learned a new dance. How did it feel? What did that look like? So just in a kind of a, to the extent that you're willing to be vulnerable and open with one another, just want to get you back in touch with those, those moments. We're going to come back, make sure we hear from, uh, from each group a little bit, and then uh, hear Chi, some of Chi's remarkable stories, thoughts, and perspectives as well. But uh, Maddie, does that sound okay for now? That is great. Um, and I just opened up all the rooms and Emily has put in um, the chat the questions. And for those on Facebook Live, we will be hanging back a few of us to share and dialogue with these questions as well. Um, and those questions should also be in the Facebook Live chat. And you can um, feel free to answer on Facebook Live and Emily will kind of be the, the in-between person for us on Zoom so that we can make sure your voice is heard and your responses are shared too. So thanks for sharing, David. So while I remember feeling awkward and partly this might have much to do with my identities, like I, uh, I knew that like people uh, were gonna feel more awkward around me than I would around them. And so I've kind of, I use that to my advantage sometimes, right? And and in high school would make jokes about it or yeah, so humor. I guess I use humor when I felt that awkward feeling. Whether dancing or otherwise. Yeah, I it's hard for me to remember. I mean, it was not even that old. I mean, it was 10 years ago for me, which is that I, I graduated high school or 11 years now that I graduated high school. So it's been a while, but it's not been like that long. I'm like, gosh, I can't already feel like a can't remember but part of that is I went to a um private school for a while and it was like I'd been with the same like 20 kids for so I was four so I feel like the, my most recent memory though of this lunchroom is actually sitting at the open table and when we're in non-pandemic times you know you come into the church and it's there's a sea of eight to ten round tables and not only do I have this like feeling about walking into a church sometimes, but then there's also this like, well, who do I sit next to? And where do I grab a plate? And what is the protocol here? Do I, do I grab food first and then sit down, you know? And um, I think there's both an awkwardness. And for me, I feel an awkward, the awkwardness as well as the like, well, if I don't try, I won't meet anyone feeling. Um, and I was like, if it goes really badly, then well, I tried kind of vibe. Um, not that that's always the most pleasant, but yeah, that's kind of some of the emotions I think I think about with that first question. Yeah, for me, I, um, I had such a tough time with this um, that I only took one year or four years of, of, of lunch. I just, I feared and I would have panic attacks around sitting in a new table and how I'd be received and um, and so I, I skipped lunch um, and ended up staying in show choir and eating my lunch in show choir of all places uh, in high school for three years. So, you know, um, that analogy of, of the fear of sitting in the new table or approaching people and not knowing how you're going to be received and how that feels in a much larger diverse world is, is uh, you know, definitely real for, for me. 
um, and certainly learning a new dance and being out on the dance floor and fearing like, especially at like weddings or something like that. You know, the one time when you're an adult and you start to dance again, you're like, oh God, please don't go horribly wrong. And, you know, um, and so it's definitely awkward, but I think to Maddie's point, sometimes you just gotta breathe, hang in there and, um, you know, and realize everybody's probably feeling the same thing. I'm also a fellow theater kid <laughs> and I definitely ate lunch in you know the theater classrooms or the dressing rooms or whatever and that was kind of like where all of theater kids hung out because you knew even if you didn't have the same lunch period as like your best friend you probably had the same lunch period as at least someone else you knew and so you'd go hang out in the theater classroom so at least you hung out with someone that you knew but yeah that's I didn't hang out in the lunchroom very often that was always very scary the um I guess my memory I don't really mine was definitely much longer ago than yours Maddie um but I I guess it like really made an impact on me how I felt about lunch I think I was telling David about this I don't know if I shared this with you and Latia but when we moved to Kansas Thomas was starting high school and we went to go um, register him and we met with his school counselor to go over his schedule. It was me, John and Thomas. And I was like, and Thomas had come to Kansas to train for soccer for two different times. And each time he stayed for a week and trained. And um, he's, he knew that there were gonna be a couple of people from his soccer team that went to his high school, but he didn't really know them. And he said, I, I think I know the goalie, his name is Charlie Dusky. And I was like, okay, cool. So I go to the counselor and I have like, I'm not afraid to say what I need and want. And I'm like, look, I don't care what classes he takes. I don't really care how high school goes down but I'm gonna need Charlie Dusky to be in his lunch period. I don't, I don't know how you do that but I need that to happen. I don't care about anything else. And she was like, uh, okay. <laughs> and she did it and I was like and because I just was like oh my god like I don't want him to get there and like not know one face um and he did eat with Charlie the first day but he hasn't eaten with Charlie since <laughs> so I mean I think he would have been fine had I not made that demanded that um but I, it was such a scary thought for me of him not knowing anyone and just being scared and worried and anxious. And I didn't want him to have those feelings. So I was like, well, if he knows one person, it'll be fine. Um, and I don't really, like, I don't remember like it being horrible for me in high school um, or that scary, but it was scary enough that I thought I don't want it to be scary for Thomas. <laughs> and maybe he wasn't even scared. I, I put my feelings on him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think just reflecting on this question too, um, I was definitely like not like the popular person by any means in, in grade school growing up. But I think thinking about the ways that even like my own awkwardness and like the privilege that I like hold intersect even the like my awkward, like the my accessibility even into those like spaces too and how I approach like a new space is like a, I think a new, like a, a new, uh, approach or question I'm thinking about in that way of like oh yes like I felt like what does it mean to not feel like welcomed in a space as far as just like people go but then a whole other different 
approach and thinking about even like, yeah, my own intersectionalities in that. So uh, thank you for that question too. And questions, David. Well, we were simply ho hoping that you all would um, en enlighten us with some of your, your conversations. Uh, did you hear any commonalities amongst all of you? Um, were there any particularly moving stories or moments and ways in which people shared vulnerably? Um, were there any moments where people took that risk of sitting at a new table and, and, and how did that go? So if folks don't mind sharing uh, at least one or two people from each group, that would be really terrific. Well, I'll go. My name's John. Um, and Garrett and I were in a group together and it was just Garrett and I. So um, it was a small group. So one of us has to speak, but it was good. We really just took the time to get to know each other um, being one-on-one. -on -one, so it was really good. Um, we, we both spoke about how we kind of both typically are more cautious than willing to just go out there and dance, so to speak. Um, the fear of looking like a fool as opposed to really embracing the opportunity to go have fun. Um, and then we just talked about some of the things we both do and share and, um, just talked about, um, I talked, spoke to about how when I went to Vietnam with Chi, it was an eye-opening experience. Everyone was Vietnamese. The language was different. So it put me in a different situation than I had never experienced before. And it was, it was a great experience. I enjoyed it. I learned so much. Um, so that's what I shared with Garrett. I shared that I often use humor in those awkward moments, whether it was like literally on the dance floor or in those moments, right? To like break that ice, we're all gonna dance awkward. So let's just like on purpose do awkward things to like break it up. Um, so humor is how I usually handle that. Well, I'll say I was with uh, Justin and Mary and Paul and both, um, Justin and Mary shared these like really beautiful stories about taking a risk and having it pay off in a really like sort of life-changing way. Um, I shared that I learned uh, square dancing in middle school and it was like the first time I touched a boy and it was awful in an all front. <laughs> but I think like, <laughs> I've been reflecting on it since I told this in the group. And I think being able to just have even a memory of knowing what, um, feeling like I wasn't in control, like I wasn't leading that dance, feeling like discomfort and how that's different than being unsafe, I think is also a really key thing that I even began to learn in middle school, that um, discomfort is going to be part of trying anything new. Um, and feeling uncomfortable is, uh, that's such a great thing to sit with. I still don't think I could square dance with Joe, like in middle school, but <laughs> it's a funny memory. <laughs> I just really hope that this was a, an interesting question. Maybe you haven't reflected on in a while. And one that usually cracks us open. Most everybody, uh, when we have, when we think about the first time we learned to dance or uh, where we're gonna sit at a lunch table, um, those are vulnerable moments um, and they're risky moments. And as we grow as adults, sometimes we can really hunkered down with folks that we oftentimes feel most comfortable with um, and and really lose that vulnerability and that uncomfortability of potentially going and sitting a new table or learning a new dance. Um, and there are sometimes some very good reasons for not wanting to sit at certain tables or learning certain dances. Um, but um, really do 
hope to encourage folks um, to, to consider new ways, new tables they might sit at or, or, or risk learning a new dance. And if you make a new friendship, really risk serving, loving and protecting that, that neighbor. And I, for me, it's important to pass the ball on over to Chi now because uh, for me, her, her entire life is a reflection of that very ethic and, a, and, a, and really look forward to hearing her share her story. Thanks, David. I um, have to say I was looking forward to this, but not looking forward to this because the last gathering that Open Table had was um, led by Garrett and Maddie, and they did such an incredible job. So following them seems really hard. Um, and then following David seems even harder. Um, so I will try my best. Um, so. What I wanted to do tonight was share some personal stories of how turning a stranger into a neighbor um, can or has affected me personally, spiritually, and I hope affect uh, a large community. Um, and what could happen if you take those risks and reach out to connect with someone that is different from you? Um, so how something has affected me personally. Um, turning a stranger into a neighbor and that dance um, has evolved for me. Um, it hasn't always been the most important thing to me to put myself out there to get to know someone else that's different from me. Um, in about five years ago, I was trying to figure out where to spend my time when helping others. Um, I would stay busy. Um, I made donations to different organizations. I volunteered at soup kitchens. I ran and walked in charity races, but it just didn't seem that meaningful to me. Um, so I asked a friend, um, she seemed to be doing a lot of work in the community. Um, so I asked her what I should do. And she asked me what broke my heart. Um, and I said, immigrants and how hard things were for them. So she directed me towards faith action, um, didn't know what faith action was. Um, and so I just threw myself into it. Um, I called and I was like, hey, I, I wanna do something. Um, and so they were like, okay, uh, we have plenty of things you can do. Um, so I took a volunteer orientation class um, and then I started. I I volunteered as much as possible. Um, I helped to translate. Um, I would get a little bit frustrated because there wasn't like that many Vietnamese immigrants in Greensboro that needed translation work. And I was like, because oh, that's where I could help. And so I get, I did get to do that sometimes. Um, I drove immigrants to appointments. I um, did uh, conversation classes. Um, I volunteered at ID drives. Um, and David didn't talk about the ID drives, but it is um, a really big part of what Faith Action does. And maybe um, after tonight, um, you could look it up. Um, it's really, really uh, amazing program. Um, and then, I guess a little bit after I started volunteering, um, somebody asked me um, if I wanted to be on the board of directors at Faith Action. And to be honest, I had no idea 
what a board of directors was, but I was like, yeah, of course I'll do it. Um, and so I joined and it has personally been so special to me because the organization directly helps immigrants every single day. Um, and not just immigrants in Greensboro, but all over the country. And immigrants that are just like my dad, my mom, and myself. So it's pretty personal to me. Um, people that are coming to the United States to provide a better life for their families and themselves. Uh, through the work, I've been able to visit undocumented strangers in detention centers, um, which are essentially, like David said, they are prisons. Um, I've been able to sit with families that are devastated that their loved ones have been detained. Um, I've been able to translate in Vietnamese, which has been meaningful because I would hope that when my parents first came to the US that there were board members, staff, volunteers, people like David at Faith Action that were willing to treat them not as strangers, but as neighbors. Um, and how that stranger to neighbor model has helped me spiritually was um, one way is uh, when I moved to Kansas City in the summer of 2019, I really, really missed faith action. I missed the work, I missed my friends, I missed the board there. And so I tried to find a faith action in Kansas. Um, I don't know if it exists, um, but I was Googling things, trying to find things to do uh, with immigrants, for immigrants. And I found that the Open Table had an event um, and they were doing an immigration series at the time. I don't know if any of you were um, present when that happened, um, but I was super excited. So I went by myself and that can be a little bit awkward um, and scary, but like Faith Action, I just threw myself into it. Um, and, you know, pre-pandemic, um, it was a um, gatherings, um, I guess, church worshiping community uh, where people ate and listened to speakers. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, the first time I went, we I listened to um, an immigration attorney and I thought, oh, this is really cool. Like you just go and eat and you listen to someone talk. And at the end of the speaker, uh, the I can't remember her name, but after she spoke, everybody sort of milled around and I feel like everyone knew each other, but um, I went up and I found Maddie and I was like, hi, um, I'm Chi and um, I want to help immigrants. And she's like, uh, okay. <laughs> um, and I was like, okay, all right, nice to meet you, bye, thanks. And um, so I think a week later, Maddie emailed me. Um, she didn't know who I was. And she said, I want to help you find ways to help the community. Um, I'll help you in whatever you need help with. And I was like, oh, okay, thank you so much. Um, and so I met with her and it was, if anybody knows Maddie, they'll know it was so lovely. Um, and after that conversation, because of Maddie, um, I reached out to Catholic Charities and I started tutoring 
uh, for the New Roots uh, Refugee Program. Um, I tutor farmers uh, to help them with their English. And then I started helping people study for their US citizenship test. Um, and then of course I started volunteering with Open Table. Uh, I was asked um, a little bit, I don't know how long it took, but I was asked to join the leadership team. And I soon found out that it was a worshiping community. Um, <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, and like Open I uh, like Faith Action, I didn't know what a leadership team was, but I was like, yeah, of course I'll do it. Um, and I started um, on the leadership team and I realized like this is a group of people that only want uh, the liberation for all. And they're actively working to be anti-racist. And that is the most spiritual thing I could think of. Um, and so it's helped me grow spiritually from learning from the people on the leadership team, um, from, you know, gatherings like this, even though it's on Zoom, I'm still learning from all the speakers and from all of you that attend. Um, lastly, I want to share a story about how I think the stranger to neighbor model can help uh, the community and even the country. Um, as I've mentioned before, I've been working with people to study for their US citizenship tests. Uh, Pre-COVID, we would meet at a library and go over lessons and um, practice questions that would be on the test. Um, and then once COVID happened, we couldn't meet anymore. So they said, you know, if you're willing to, can you pair up with somebody and uh, go over the questions and practice over Zoom? And so, of course, I said yes. Um, and they assigned me, uh, they paired me up with Sylvia. Sylvia uh, speaks little English um, and I speak no Spanish. So it was really hard and awkward, like that dance. Um, and I was trying to figure it out. She was trying to figure out. And I honestly wanted to get off the dance floor. So I called the coordinator and I was like, I don't think this is gonna work. Uh, you should probably find her a new tutor because I feel like she's gonna be really frustrated with me and I don't know how well this is gonna go and maybe you should find someone that speaks Spanish. I think that would be more helpful. So the coordinator had said, okay, Chi, can you just stick it out until we find um, a new tutor? And I was like, okay, yeah, I don't mind sticking it out, but just saying, I, I don't feel like it's gonna go well. So anyways, it's been months and they never found another tutor. Um, they um, checked in with Sylvia. She says she doesn't want another tutor. <laughs> um, and I think that we kind of figured out um, what's comfortable for us and what's uncomfortable for us. And I, um, figured out that there's Google Translator. So when there are things that she doesn't understand, I put it in Google Translator and it says it out loud and she can hear it and then she understands. And I use a whiteboard and um, we're figuring it out. Um, and so we just found a rhythm and, you know, sometimes we get stuck, but that's okay. That's part of the beauty of the dance. Um, and so, 
I say that to say that not, you know, I feel like I'm helping her to prepare for this test. Um, and I hope that, you know, she feels like I am helping her. Um, and when she does pass that test, it's going to help her personally. It's going to help her. It's going to help her family. It's going to allow her not to be at risk to be deported. It's going to allow her children not to be at risk to be deported. And she's going to be able to sponsor her family to come to the U.S. Um, and so, and this is the bigger picture for me is, and one of the very cool things about it is when she passes that test, she's going to be able to be a U.S., uh, she'll be a U.S. citizen and she'll be able to vote. Um, and voting helps her community and helps all of us. It helps the entire country. Um, so, you know, I think that's, what for Sylvia, I think personally learning that dance is not only going to help her and her family, but all of us. Um, and so I know that, you know, we all have different stories and experiences of meeting someone new. Um, and what, what we do when we are offered that spot on the dance floor. Um, so right now, when we go into breakout rooms, um, I hope that you could maybe think of a person or a group that may be different from you in culture, faith, nationality, or politics that might be worth reaching out to and trying to build some greater understanding and trust with this person. And what might this mean for you spiritually and what it could mean for the longer term well-being of the larger community. I'm I'm having a hard time with this question, not because it's a bad question, but I um coming from New York City have felt that uh the Midwest and uh almost everybody here is sort of like that. Um and in particular the 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 Christian culture um, are, yeah, are people that I have to do that dance with often. Um, and sometimes I do it well, and sometimes I don't. Um, so I just wonder how this question hits people who, who identify as BIPOC. So thank you for naming that. Latia. I've seen like, I mean, it's one of those silly, not silly, but like a uh, little cartoon things that I've seen floating around social media. That's like, we can agree to disagree. And it's like, we can disagree about what pizza toppings we like, but we can't disagree on racism. And it's, you know, it's funny to see, but then it's like, okay, but what does that actually look like in interpersonal relationships? And yeah. Yeah. Cause I think as a, as a white person looking at this question, I'm there's a mental part of me that's like, yeah, like it's my like uh, uh, obligation doesn't seem like the right word, but maybe obligation for lack of, for, I guess, lack of better words for right now, obligation to to engage with obviously other white people in the work of liberation and anti-racism. And 
then there's a part of me that's like, well, when it's your own family, then, and there's more emotions involved, like, what does that mean? And that's like a different game than engaging like the other white person across the road than like people who I sit at Thanksgiving dinner table with, but those are probably the people I first need to talk with. And yeah. And it, it's something I feel like I sit with often. Um, I feel like most of my therapy sessions are about things like this. <laughs> oh, bless therapy. Um, yeah, I don't have, I don't have an answer for it, but I want to just say thank you for naming that too. Reverend Latia. Oh, David, you're muted. Go ahead. She, gonna say I was just going to say, I never, um, when I read the question and when I said it out loud, I never thought about it that way. Um, and I, you know, as I know, I have struggled with being um, considered BIPOC. I don't know if that's why it didn't occur to me um, that that's an experience that somebody would have um, about, you know, taking that first step with somebody that is different? I think my first thought goes back to even like, I don't know, just even for me, I'm hearing like how much more important it is for myself and other white people than to more so engage. If we're thinking, if we're speaking specifically about like, you know, racial identities, it's like, yeah, like certain viewpoints or opinions are, are deadly actually like, and not just like, Oh, like we can agree, disagree, but like deadly for people. And, and how much more is it important for me as a white person? Like I'm not physically endangered by engaging in that conversation for the most part, usually. I mean, there's always cases, but like on average, like that's not going to be the case for me. And um, yeah. And that's not to say that I, I don't need to, you know, have yeah. conversations with other people who are not like me, but I, I think, especially as a black person, um, I'm always like on alert to like, okay, who, who am I with? How do I engage? What are the cultural things here? And I'm always going to be the one to break the ice first, or I should say more times than not. Um, because because the world is set up that way. Yeah, and I, I think some of this question for me, the language of someone worth reaching out to, by that I mean both somebody that is going to be safe enough and, and open enough to what you're saying and is not already so closed off that there might be some evolution in their values. Because, I mean, we can, we can try and change systems all we want, but if we don't, ultimately change the, the values, norms, and systems of people who helped feed these larger systems, then I, I, I think when they gain power again, it, it's, it's only going to come roaring back and even, and even more angrily. And that's why you know, I, I kind of go back to this notion of you know, change can happen either through revolution or evolution. Revolution, there are winners and losers. Evolution, it is at a meeting people where they're at and taking them on this heart and mind journey and hoping that in the 
morning they wake up like Scrooge did in the Christmas Carol story and after being visited from three ghosts and actually truly had a mind change. The problem is that takes people a long time to do. But on the other hand, if it doesn't happen, I just kind of feel like we're going to be in a never-ending boxing match with one another on a cultural level. And so we can have our victories in the progressive level, but it, it'll come rolling back. And so I just, but I don't, I, but I, I think it, for myself, then I think it's my, when I, part of the reason I put in politics there is for me, when I think folks like, not like me, is a lot of people back in Indiana. And part of me wants to name and shame the hell out of them, but also knows that when I do that, they only get more angry and further away from where we need them to be. So I'm really trying to figure out a new way to stay on the dance floor with them, even though I get frustrated with where they're at. And also knowing that I got a lot of change to still to do yet myself. So, um, You know, yeah, I was just thinking about the quote that um, I think is attributed to James Baldwin, but it may be someone else. Just like, you can agree to disagree with me unless you're disagreeing with my humanity. And so that makes me think about that quote a lot. I think it's um, interesting. I don't know if anybody wants to share, you know, what their thoughts were as far as a person or group that you think you might want to reach out to and build, you know, some understanding with. All right. I was saying um, I've been doing some of this, but maybe doing some more of people that I talk to about the vaccine that don't that don't want to get it. Um, just letting them know that I know how to sign up. And if they ever decide that they want to do that, to let me know and I can help them figure out how to get signed up. So that was something I'd said. Oh my gosh, Melissa, I, um, that's so great. And not to push whatever you're feeling about it on someone and just giving him, giving them the information. Yeah. That's, that, that's really great. I, I wish I could do that more. Um, yeah, that's really great. Um, in our group, um, I think I don't want Reverend Latia, um, to feel forced to speak. Um, but she brought up a good point, um, that I hadn't really thought of or, um, or something for us to reflect on was how sometimes, um, there are feelings there, and Reverend Latia, please um, let me know if I'm messing it up. Um, there are feelings out there that may keep you from reaching out um, if you're a person, uh, someone that's BIPOC. Um, and sometimes when you are BIPOC, you feel like you are the person that has to be the first person to reach out and make that connection. Um, I don't know if that uh, resonates with anybody else in the group. So I will share, it's not like in connection with Latia, but I was saying that some of my hardest conversations are with family members. <laughs> and um, that I have more patience than with somebody that I don't know than I do at times with my my own family members. Cause it's like, we were, I don't get it. It's like, we were raised by the same parents <laughs> and it's like, 
what the hell? <laughs> How can you believe that? And I believe this. And I was just, I was um, saying to Ellen that, so the other day I saw this post and I posted it on Facebook and it says, we can't force someone to hear a message they are not ready to receive, but we must never underestimate the power of, the, of planting a seed. And I think that even if you have any kind of a conversation that, that plants a seed. And so I've had those conversations like with my brother who we disagree politically <laughs> and I get to a certain point and, um, and then I just say, you know what? This needs to end right now. Um, obviously we don't, see eye to eye and I love you and we can pick it up later. And I leave it at that. So I leave the door open. I like that too, Kathy, um, because sometimes um, as David has reminded me before, if you don't meet people where they are, you can't really ask them to continue to dance or even try to. Um, so yeah, I, I can definitely relate to that and, um, having relatives or family that don't be the same as I do politically. So yeah, that's, that's a hard one. I think for me, it's even hard, like thinking about, I brought up family as well, Kathy. So thank you for sharing that. And even sharing the, leaving the door open, that feels like a big part of the stranger to neighbor thing. It's not like a one and done conversation type thing, but um, I've been thinking about like from this conversation, how my political views are tied to my spiritual beliefs though. And I almost don't even feel like they're separate like categories of like, oh, we believe differently politically. It's like, no, I believe what I believe politically because I believe what I believe spiritually. And it's, they feel so intertwined. And so there's a part of me in this conversation that even in that division, it, it feels more muddy, even in my, uh, in my body thinking about like that, that division in beliefs, if that makes sense. Um, I think I was just going to share, I, we, we talked about this a lot in our group, like the, the challenges of, of political differences with, with family. And, um, and, and another thing I mentioned, like I work with, a, I have the honor of working with a couple of immigrant spiritual communities here in Kansas City. Um, and the things that I'm noticing along the way of like, oh, like funding opportunities, um, support structures, things that uh, come from this really progressive ideology, um, and they're, they're good, they're very helpful, and, and they still perpetuate the systems that communicate a deep unwelcome, um, that it causes then these folks to have to like seek help from other people who English is their first language, and all, like all these ways that just barriers, I think, to, to the access, um, the, the assimilation that has to take place to be able to access that, and that's in like the more progressive spaces that are mindful of that, and so I think I'm just aware of like, um, it strangely relates to the other conversation we were having about politics and like, I mean, that's, that's definitely a divide too, but I'm always, I feel like I'm always wrestling with, I want to um, be present to the individuals. I want to always be present to the individuals, whether I agree with them or not, whether it's like helpful um, 
And I want to, I want to dismantle those systems that don't make them feel welcome. I want to dismantle the evil that's perpetuated by some of this, like, um, some of this, like, really limiting and, and racist ideology. Um, and I, I, like, I still want to love my parents, and I still want to love, like, the people that are in these spaces. So, um, oh, man, I'm still struggling. That's going to be an ongoing thing, but I appreciate this conversation for that reason, too, just being able to name the individual and the systemic, and, like, how do we make change, but be present to people too.